fun seeing the pictures of spring break. Uh, I was reminded seeing those pictures. I saw a couple of the, the guys on the team that I was coaching. I had 16 to 18 year olds and maybe it was a translation mistake. Maybe it was intentional by someone helping me. I thought our team name was going to be the Rams. We ended up being the sheep. Uh, ovejas is the word in Spanish. So uh, man, I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to rally these 16-year-old, 16-year-old guys. Come join the sheep. And uh, the Ovejas, we started the Olympics competition with an art competition where my guys got last place. We thought, oh, man, our, 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 our uh, a team of sheep are in last place. But then I was reminded in one of those pictures, I don't know if I led them or they led themselves to get first place in basketball. And first place in track and field, and then the final event, first place in the soccer match, and the Ovejas got the, the gold medal for the 16 to 18-year-olds. So I think it was a the first shall be last and the last shall be first kind of story. So I was uh, glad to, to have that memory. It was a really fun spring break trip, really good. Um, so Garen asked me to, to fill in in preaching for him this week, the week after Easter, I just feel like our church, our church staff, Garen, uh, the volunteers last week, everyone did a great job of putting on display for our church community the story of Easter, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. I thought it was a great week last week. Uh, you know, the Easter is kind of the, the highlight of the, the church calendar. If you come to church, that's what we, we celebrate. It's this unique time. And as I was thinking about Easter last week and then this week, I was reminded of a, a passage of scripture that I've been looking forward to, to sharing with someone, been thinking a lot about, and it is a high followed by a low. It's a story of Elijah, and uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a story of this great victory that Elijah experiences, and it's followed in chapter 19 by this great low, and so it, it ushers in, in chapter 18, uh, Elijah gets to see as God brings about this, this great demonstration of his power and his uncompromising holiness. And, and if you were to read chapter 18 of 1 Kings, it's almost, it, it's scary, the, the drama and the, uh, just the, the display of God's power. It's, it's amazing. And that's followed in chapter 19 by Elijah's running away in fear to, to hide out in the wilderness and then to pray and ask God, will you let me die? A great big high followed by this great low. And uh, as I think about that demonstration of high and low, I imagine that, that many of us more readily relate to the feelings of fear, the feelings of loneliness that Elijah was experiencing. I think we relate more to that than his feelings of, of victory the sense that, that God is in control and can do great things. So as I've thought about the high and the low, uh, the, the greatness and then the, the feelings of, of loss, of fear, I think that the same God who whispers into Elijah's life, I'm here and I want to redirect you, whispers some truth into our lives as well. So we're going to look at chapter 19 of 1 Kings, and I think we find this truth for our lives this morning, that even... When we run away, the Lord pursues us, the Lord meets our needs, and he calls us back into the work 
of his restoration. So we'll be looking at 1 Kings 19. If you don't have a Bible, you know, find one, get out your phone. There's Bibles in the cart in the back. I'm going to read from 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. Um, if you're not familiar with your Bible yet, maybe you're like, where's 1 Kings? I describe it this way. Go to the Psalms or in the middle and take a left-hand turn and go to the, the earlier part of the Bible. Uh, this section of God's word is this, this story that explains how God's people, they are um, rescued from slavery in the book of Exodus in Egypt. And then eventually they find themselves um, in a great, great low as they are in a captivity in Babylon. And so this uh, section of God's word explains, here's how God's kingdom fell apart. Here's how it all went south. And so 1 Kings 19 is a, a part of that story. Let me read 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. Here's what the, the text has to say. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba in Judah, and he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate, he drank, and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for your journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put the prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They have put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. 
and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahoah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all of whom their knees have not bowed down to Baal, and their mouths have not kissed him. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory of Ahab and Jezebel. Tell you a little bit about what's going on in this text. Ahab was king over Israel. He had entered into a an arranged marriage, a politically advantageous marriage to the Phoenician princess Jezebel. If she wasn't a, a Hebrew, um, Ahab's father was King Omri. Omri in 1 Kings 16.25 is described this way. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he sinned more than all of those before him. So Omri and his son, uh, King Ahab, they had experienced uh, political success. They had led the nation into financial success, but their reigns were divorced from any faithfulness to the Lord. Ahab had established the worship of Baal. Jezebel had brought into the nation of Israel more emphasis on worshiping Baal. So the king of Israel, who's both a a political leader, but was supposed to be a religious leader as well, had brought the worship of idols, the worship of Baal and Asherah, the female version, and they'd built temples. They'd set up idols and were worshiping these idols. He says in 1 Kings 16, 32 through 33, that he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built it in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So Ahab's father had set the course of being worse than anyone before him, and his son Ahab is even worse than that. Elijah was a prophet who was called to serve as prophet under Ahab and Jezebel's reign. And Elijah had confronted Ahab and Jezebel from the very beginning. Um, He came to their idolatry, and he called it out. He confronted it. It says in 1 Kings 18, 16 through 18, that Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, Ahab says to Elijah, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. So there's this direct confrontation between Elijah and the king of Israel who's brought in pagan worship, and Ahab and Jezebel have led the nation into such deep idolatry. It says that Jezebel would would bring in hundreds of priests to the prophet Baal and and elevate them into high status in the nation. They would share these great meals together. They had uh, mixed together the worship of God and um, fertility rituals to the the deity Baal. Um, Not only had they begun this idol, idol worship, because of their political success and their financial security, Ahab and Jezebel had a mighty army under their command. So then you have the chapter 18, where Elijah has been confronting their idolatry. He's been calling them out. And then God uses Elijah in the second half of chapter 18 
to call down this great destruction on the prophets of Baal, to destroy their temples, to destroy their altars, and to end the lives of these pagan priests. It's a great demonstration of God's power and his holiness. Then we have chapter 19. Elijah's response to this is that his life is under threat and he runs into the wilderness to hide. I'll read it again. Chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message, the messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, create ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Now, in thinking about how, um, how this plays out in uh, Jezebel and in her life, the one thing that I want us to, to catch and remember is that the key part of, of this part of the story is that as Elijah runs, God pursues him. And I want us to know this morning that God pursues us. This language about Jezebel, the, this is the first um, description of what she says. The first words out of her mouth are essentially, um, I want Elijah dead by tomorrow. Now, music is kind of funny. As I've been reading and thinking and preparing to, to share from this text, there's um, a song that has continued to pop into my mind and it's kind of humming as I'm reading and writing. And it's an old Elvis Presley song, um, the Elvis Presley song, Hard-Headed Woman. Now, I don't want to like endorse, you know, everything that, you know, if Garen is preaching or if I'm preaching and we reference like a, some music or a movie, that doesn't mean go out and listen to it. I don't know if I would say this Elvis Presley song is a good song necessarily, but Elvis talks about uh, a hard-headed woman and talks about Jezebel. And I think the reason I bring that up, the language of Jezebel, if you kind of Google Jezebel, the, the ideas, the things that come up are this idea that, that she's kind of an anti-hero, uh, uh, a bad girl, and something to almost tongue-in-cheek celebrate. That is not how Elijah experienced Jezebel. Elijah sees Jezebel as a politically ruthless murderer. She had every intention of ending his life and all of the power to make it happen. So it's not kind of a, a she's not an anti-hero. She's not the butt of a joke. She is a, a fearsome power as Elijah runs to hide in the wilderness. Uh, she says, I want Elijah dead by tomorrow. And he knows that she means it. Then, verse 3 and 5, Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah had good reason to run. He runs into the wilderness in fear of losing his life. And when he'd run so fast and so far that he's run completely out of energy, he prays that the Lord would take away his life. I've had enough, Lord. I don't know, you know, do you, if he's speaking with God, I'm not sure, do we call this a, a prayer or, or a cry of his, but he says, I've had enough. Um, I think that that prayer, if we can call it that, is a more common prayer than maybe I once realized. That 
declaration. I've had enough of this struggle. I've had enough of some temptation. I've had enough of the pain of this life. Those are the, the prayers that I think we often pray. Part of what Elijah is dealing with is the, the sense of failure that he is experiencing. Even though he has seen this amazing demonstration of God's power, he recognizes that nothing seems to have really changed. That's what he says. I'm, I'm not any different than my ancestors who have come before me. They tried to stop this pagan worship. They tried to stop the evil that was present in the nation, and nothing has changed then, and nothing has changed now. He feels like a failure. His perception, then, is that he's alone, that he's a failure, and that God's only remaining task to be accomplished would be to take his life. But I want you to understand that Elijah's perception is not the reality that we see in God's word. And the Lord reminds us of that over and over again. Elijah was not alone. Elijah had not failed the Lord. And the role of prophet was something that Elijah would pass on to Elisha. I don't know about you. Um, I think there are many times when I have felt like running away. And I would imagine that you've felt the same thing. Maybe we don't have like a, this is a, a broom bush. Maybe we don't have like a, a desert or a wilderness to, to run away to. But in many ways, I think we are all tempted to, to run to the wilderness. How many times has someone let you down? How many times has someone, even someone in church, failed you and you've decided to, to run away? We say, I've had enough of this job. I've had enough of this church. I've had enough of this town. I've had enough of this school. I've had enough of this marriage. I'm alone. I'm a failure. And now I'm going to ask God to, to cut me off in some final way. Know that you are not alone. The same God that, that interacts with Elijah is the same God who interacts with us. You are not alone. Our God is the God who pursues us. He pursues us into the wilderness, and wherever we go, he's there. The way the psalmist in Psalm 139 says it is this way, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Wherever Elijah goes, the Lord pursues him. Wherever we would go to escape from the difficulty of this life, the Lord is there with us. I think part of what Elijah is dealing with and what we deal with um, is how propaganda works. Do you know how propaganda works? Um, usually there's an organization, a government, something with great power um, uses propaganda, a message of untruth that's so loud, it's so pervasive, it's so convincing that the people who hear it are tempted to believe a lie. Uh, right now, the uh, Russian government is trying to use its propaganda to convince the Russian people that they are winning a military effort to protect Russian citizens, where in the West, anyone who gets out a phone and brings up the news can see that the Russians are not protecting Russians. They're not winning. The reality is they're committing war crimes against Ukrainian citizens. 
But because the message is convincing and persistent, the lie becomes a truth that people are convinced to believe. You and I have a crafty enemy who's bombarding us with propaganda. He's bombarding our soul with a message that says you're alone, you're a failure, and all that the Lord wants to do is cut you off in some final way. It says that your best option is to flee to the wilderness and declare, I've had enough. Don't believe the lies of Satan's propaganda. You're not alone. God's not done with you. The same God who's with Elijah is with us. The next thing I want you to see in the text is that first, that the same God that pursues Elijah, God pursues us. And the same God who meets Elijah's needs meets our needs. Looking at verses 5 through 9, I want you to see again what happens with Elijah. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. And strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he had reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. So this angel, a messenger from the Lord, shows up and cares for Elijah. I love the, the details of this text. Uh, I, I've heard it said, and I believe it to be true, that there's never a, a wasted detail, a wasted piece of information in God's word. And so every little detail is there for some reason. So I love the, the language of bread that's baked over hot coals, the, the jar of water, the, the second time that the angel provides for him and, and meets his needs. I love the details of the text. You can kind of put yourself in Elijah's situation and imagine what does it look like, what does it smell like. But the Lord has provided for all of his practical needs. He's met his needs and cared for him. Now, as I describe the, the idea that the Lord who meets Elijah's needs is the same God who meets our practical needs, some of you, Maybe a small minority. Some of you are like, well, of course he does. The Lord meets my practical needs all the time. I know some of you, that's your experience with the Lord. But I also would imagine that many of you are more like me. My experience oftentimes with, with God is that I know that the Lord provides for my inner life. As I read God's word, as I remember what it teaches me, I know that God cares for my soul. I know that God guides my, my thoughts and my emotions, my, my spiritual life. But so much of that is the inner life, and I live like God has said. Now, all of the practical details, those are up to you. That is oftentimes how my relationship with God works out. I make the mistake of thinking that the Lord has left every practical detail. That's Jason's job. All the spiritual stuff, that's God's job. That's not Elijah's experience. It's not the experience of many of the, the great missionaries and ministers that I read about in history. Uh, when I think of, uh, of how that has worked out in, in things that I have studied, I see missionaries and ministers who've surrendered all of the important practical details 
of day-to-day ministry, they offer that up to the Lord in prayer. It's not up to them to, to make those things happen. When I have read about uh, Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, uh, one of the things that they tell the story about is that in his preparation for becoming a missionary, Hudson Taylor became convinced that he had to surrender all of his life to the Lord in prayer. And so he tells the story of working for an attorney before he became a missionary, but he was in preparation. He's working for an attorney, and the attorney had forgotten to pay him. So he doesn't have money to, to buy food, to provide for himself, but instead of going to his, uh, his employer and saying, hey, you forgot to pay me, I, I need that money to, to take care of myself, he decides to commit it to the Lord in prayer. And he prays and prays, and then eventually the, the Lord puts it on the heart of his employer to, to pay him and, and provide for his needs. He talks about that as preparation for laying every practical detail of life at the feet of Jesus. And today, um, the mission that he started, the Inland Christian Mission, is still operates that this is one of their key principles, that they, instead of asking for people to meet their needs, they go to the Lord in prayer, and that's how they've functioned ever since then. Uh, George Mueller is another example of that, the leader, minister in Great Britain who cared for thousands of orphans. The way he ran the orphanage was to ask for the Lord in prayer to, to meet all of the needs that they had. So they tell the story of one morning, he gathers the, the children in the orphanage to have breakfast, and there's nothing to eat. So they gather to pray a prayer over the meal that's not there. As they're praying, a milk uh, wagon breaks down outside of the orphanage. Well, the Lord has provided. Here's our breakfast. They go out, and the, the wagon couldn't go on. He says, well, my, my milk's going to go to waste, so I guess we'll give it to all of the orphans. I don't always live like Hudson Taylor or George Mueller. I know that the Lord cares for my soul, but all of the practical stuff I know I wrestle with and, and try to make sense of how to surrender the practical to the Lord. But here's what I know. The text is, is crystal clear. Elijah is in need, and, and the Lord shows up and provides bread and water, not just once but twice, to give him fuel for his journey. He had a practical need at the lowest point of his life when he felt utterly hopeless and the Lord provided for him. Now, I don't think in, in saying this, in, in preaching this, that tomorrow I will automatically be able to, to take every one of my practical needs to the Lord in prayer. I'm not about to become the person, and if this is some of you, keep doing it. I'm not going to like pull into the, the parking lot when I'm shopping somewhere and pray that the Lord will give me like the right parking spot. Um, that's you know, like super practical right in front of me. That's not how I'm, I'm wired. And I don't feel like I have to become uh, like that. But I do know that if I'm going to make a mistake, that my desire is to stop erring on the side of all of life is under my control and surrender, make, make the mistake of saying, I'll bring more to the Lord in prayer than, than maybe even is necessary. I want to stop making the mistake of saying it's all mine and giving more and more of it over to the Lord in prayer. Last thing that I want you to see is that the Lord calls us back into his work of restoration. Verses 11 through 15 say this. So then there was a great and powerful wind that tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah hears the the whisper of this question, what are you doing here? The Lord did not drive Elijah into the wilderness. Elijah's fear for his life, the fear of Jezebel is what drove him into the wilderness. And that's where Elijah says, I'm the only one left. And that's not the reality, but it's perception. Instead, the Lord says, I want you to go back where you came from, turn around from the wilderness and go back where you came from. My call is that you would begin to anoint the next generations of leaders, that you would go and anoint a new king over Israel. You would anoint a new prophet in the land of Israel. This is the work of restoration that I want you to return to. There is a faithful remnant of thousands in the nation, and they will continue to do my work. Elijah had decided that God was finished in Israel. He had decided that God was finished with his own ministry, and the Lord makes it clear that he has other plans in mind. I think if this teaches us anything, is it teaches us that the Lord is not finished with any of us yet. Some of you feel like you're too old to make a difference. Some of you feel like you've tried to, to share faith or to help, you know, a friend or a family member, you know, so many times that you're done with that, that it's not going to work out. I don't believe that we have permission from the Lord to walk away from a sinful generation, to walk away from friends or family members who we've, we've already tried and it didn't work out. I don't think God gives us the permission to leave a nation or a family member. In the same way that the Lord calls Elijah to pass the baton and raise up a new generation of kings and prophets, the Lord's calling elders and leaders, people who know the Lord, to rise up a younger generation of leaders. I have this unique opportunity to see how this plays out in that I have one foot in like church life and one foot foot in a life with, with college students. And so I hear some folks say, gosh, I'm glad that you are working with students over there on campus where it's dark and sinful and, and bad stuff's going on over there. There's an element of that that might be true, but I get to know young people who are so passionate about their love for Jesus. And so many of them who are going to become leaders and all the different circles of influence in our world, they need someone to pass the baton. They need someone to invest in their lives and raise them up into levels of leadership for our future. So I don't believe that we have this permission to, to walk away, to say that it's too sinful, it's too difficult, or it's too dark. Last thought I would share with you just in summary is this, that even when we run away, he pursues us, he meets our needs, and he calls us back into his work of restoration. I would ask you to, to kind of pray a prayer in the week ahead and ask the Lord to whisper into your life. I think sometimes I long for God to show up in power or with drama, for the Lord to show up in the form of an earthquake or a fire and, and convince me or convince the people around me that, that he is real, that he's doing awesome things. But Elijah doesn't need 
the great demonstration of power. He needs the whisper of the Lord to say, why are you here? I have more work for you to do. I have a a passing of the baton that I want you to be involved with. So I would ask you to ask the Lord for his whisper in your life. And don't be surprised if for some of you he whispers, why are you here? What are you running from that you can turn around and enter back into in the work of the Lord? For some of you, you find yourself here on a Sunday morning having only run away from Jesus. If you have spent your entire life running from Jesus and have never had the opportunity to commit a life to following him as your Lord, the most important thing for you to do is maybe hear this as the the Spirit's whisper in your life. Why are you running? What are you doing here? Come into relationship with him. Recognize the the work of the Lord in calling you towards a a decision of making him the the Lord and the Savior of your life. Let me pray for us for that now. Father God, I thank you that you see fit to, to speak truth into our lives, reminding us that you are the God who pursues us. You don't ask us to pursue you, to clean up our lives, to somehow make uh, our lives acceptable to you because we'll never be acceptable, but that you pursue us in our brokenness and our sin and you call us into new life from death into life. Father, thank you that you are the God who pursues us. Father, I thank you that, that you desire to meet our practical needs. Father, we recognize that we only draw breath, we only live today because of your provision in our lives. Knowing that, Father, I pray that you would teach us to surrender more and more of our lives, even the practical details of your lordship. That you would teach our hearts to, to be expectant of your work in our lives. Father, I, I thank you that you are a, a God who calls us to your work, calls us to, to bring heaven on earth, your will be done in in this place and in this time. Father, I ask that you would would call up future leaders who would receive that passing of the baton from established leaders in in our church and in our community. Father, I pray that you would uh, call us to this kind of work that, that makes your message shine bright in our community. So I thank you for your love for us, for your care for us. Teach more and more. Teach us about how you love us and how you desire us to be at work in our work, in our places of work, places of of education, our families. Amen. If you have any questions about this, you want to talk some more about uh, this text or what Jesus might be doing in your life, I'd love to talk to you about that. You guys are dismissed.